0: They see him instead as a fulfillment of biblical prophecy, as someone who is so radical and so disruptive and so combative that it's not just about winning mundane political victories. It's about winning much bigger victories. It's about winning America for God. It's about winning the final battle against Satan.
1: You're listening to the USSC Briefing Room, a podcast from the United States Study Center at the University of Sydney, where we give you a seat at the table for a USSC briefing on the latest developments in U.S. news and foreign policy. We'll cover what you need to know and what's beneath the surface of the news. Hello, I'm Jared Monchang, Director of Research at the U.S. Study Center. Um, before we begin today, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of Australia. The University of Sydney stands on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. And I further acknowledge the traditional owners of the country in which you are on and pay respects to their elders, past, present, and future. Welcome to another episode of the USCC Briefing Room, a podcast from the US Study Center at the University of Sydney, where we give you a seat at the table for USCC Briefing on the latest developments in news and foreign policy. And today, we get the opportunity to do sort of our bread and butter here at the U.S. State Center, and that's discussing U.S. politics. In November 2024, Americans will have to go to the ballot box to decide who they want to be president. Right now, we have a general idea of who that may be from the Democratic Party, most likely the sitting president, Joe Biden. But there are a number of candidates on the Republican side of the aisle who are running for the Republican nomination. August, in many ways, marks the beginning of the campaign because there will be a debate among the Republican nominees for president on Fox News. Now, to discuss this and so much more in such a compelling and interesting election season that we are entering, I have two distinguished guests with us today. I have David Smith and Victoria Cooper. David Smith is the associate professor in American politics and foreign policy, who is jointly appointed between the US Study Center and the School of Social and Political Science at The University of Sydney. Victoria Cooper is the research editor at the U.S. Studies Center. She specializes in U.S. domestic politics and elections, as well as political trends and public opinion in both the U.S. and Australia. All right, so let's get started. For Australians listening in to us who may not be familiar with the sort of U.S. political system and why we're talking about Republicans and primaries, David, could you just give us an idea of what we're facing now next year uh, with the Republican primaries and maybe how they differ from the uh, Australian sort of pre-selection system?
0: Yeah, so primaries are the elections that determine who the presidential candidates or who the congressional candidates will be for each of the major parties. Unlike pre-selection in Australia, which is limited to small numbers of dues-paying party members in branches, Primaries are open to anybody who is either a registered member of the party in some states, or in other states, they're actually open to anybody. Any registered voter can vote in the primaries. That means that you have tens of millions of Americans voting in primary elections. So it's a much bigger process. Primary campaigns are fought in much the same way as general election campaigns. They are increasingly Very expensive. It costs millions and millions of dollars to run a primary campaign and they get a lot of media attention. Primaries were introduced in the progressive era as a way of making the process of party selection more democratic. But it was not until the 1968 Democratic Convention in Chicago, which was famously violent and contentious. That the parties actually adopted primaries in every state as a means of selecting their presidential candidate. So really, it's been about 50 years that primaries have been this main mechanism of selecting candidates.
1: Great. Thanks for that. There are now a dozen or more Republican candidates seeming to be running for the Republican nomination. Um, we sort of can assume that Joe Biden will be the Democratic nominee in November 2024, but who do you think are the the handful of Republican uh, candidates who are leading the pack and who you're watching? We we know it's Trump, but beyond Trump, who who do you see?
2: Ah, beyond Trump, I feel like Trump's the obvious one. That was my number one answer of who who is is in the Republican field because that's you know, the only person we're really talking about is Trump. Um, but other than Trump, I kind of, the way I think about it is that there's two other buckets and one is DeSantis and the other is everyone else. Um, DeSantis is far and away, like a uh, front-running Trump, non-Trump, Republican candidate. Um, Although his campaign has run into quite a lot of trouble recently, so who knows how long he will come out in front. But he is the governor for Florida. He won his 2022 re-election at the midterms by a margin of about 20 points, which was pretty historic for a normal swing state in Florida. Um, He's widely popular. He's got an anti work campaign that's really popular with the electoral base. Um, As far as a non-Trump, Trump-like candidate goes, he's very much uh, ahead in that in that regard. Um, but there are a number of other candidates that have kind of, you know, been inching their way out ahead in the field as well. Uh, Tim Scott, the uh, senator from South Carolina, he's also making waves, especially in Iowa. He's got quite a well-funded campaign Um, so he's uh, seems to be tracking better and better as time goes on and also from South Carolina we've got Nikki Haley who used to be the uh, UN ambassador or the US ambassador to the UN uh, but also was uh, South Carolina governor and also uh, a representative in the South Carolina state senate uh, legislature so she also is uh, doing quite well and there's a number of other candidates Um, Mike Pence the former vice president Also, uh, you know, not doing too badly. Um, But even when I'm saying that they're not doing too badly, we're still talking about single digit um, popularity or support among the Republican voter base. And that's the Republican... A primary voter base, which doesn't include the entire nation. So these chances are still incredibly slim because the person that we should be talking about when we're talking about GOP candidates going forward in the primaries is really Trump. Uh, he's really taking up all the airtime, he's making it really hard for the other candidates to compete. Um, and he has, you know, I, I think the last statistic I saw was if. DeSantis is the next closest runner. He's still got a 36 percentage point lead, which is massive. Um, And the other candidates are kind of splitting the tickets between themselves. So when you ask me who the Republican field is, it looks like Trump, DeSantis, and a bucket of others.
1: Anyone else you want to add there, David?
0: There's also Vivek Ramaswamy, who is not a politician at all. He's a 37-year-old biotech entrepreneur. And he is essentially running as Trump 2.0. So as somebody with no political experience who is proposing a lot of attention-grabbing but completely unrealistic things, last I heard he was proposing to the NRA that everybody in Taiwan should be given a gun Mm. and trained to use it. Um, And he's actually quite friendly with Trump. He has shaken hands with Trump at a rally, and I think that primarily indicates that Trump doesn't see him as any kind of threat.
1: Great. Now, we've listed a few candidates. Now, on uh, August 23rd, Fox News is supposed to be hosting a debate. Um, There's some debate about the debate. Will Mm. it happen? Uh, Who will be on there? Now, there's also criteria to, uh, to actually qualify for the debate. And uh, to my knowledge, this is the only one scheduled uh, for the entire Republican primary uh, elections. Can David, you maybe tell me who do you think will qualify for that debate, assuming there is one?
0: It's hard to say because most of the candidates don't meet these qualifications. So far, Trump and DeSantis are the only ones who obviously do. And those qualifications are that in either national polls or early state polls you have to have polled above I think it's two percent
2: yeah,
0: of the vote which is a harder bar to meet than you might think like today the Washington Post had this very earnest editorial saying we should be taking Asa Hutchinson seriously as a candidate former governor of Arkansas he is polling at 0.8 percent on oh. average at the moment <laughs> but there's another requirement so there are there are a few candidates who would meet that uh 2% one I think including every candidate that Victoria mentioned but then there's another requirement which it might trip them up which is that they have to have a certain number of individual donors and once again Trump and DeSantis would meet this qualification Ramaswamy claims that he has met this qualification but it's unclear that anybody else would someone like Tim Scott for example He's got a lot of attention from a few donors, Mm. but it's not clear that he would have uh, the
2: 40,000 required.
0: 40,000 individual donors required. So if they want an actual debate, they may have to rethink this criteria. The other problem with that debate is Trump doesn't seem very enthusiastic about doing it. And you could argue that without Trump, you don't really have a debate. I think he sees that there's no real upside to him doing it. He's leading by such a long way in the polls. He feels that it would be demeaning to him as the front runner. And what Trump has always wanted is a non-contest. The reason why he announced his candidacy so early was to try to intimidate anybody else out of running in the first place. So he wants to make it appear as much of a non-contest as possible. So he may not even do the debate, which would potentially leave DeSantis and maybe Ramaswamy on stage there together. And I don't think that's the kind of spectacle
1: that...
2: They want to put on. Work off, I, I <laughs> yes. so I'm i less woke than you, and <laughs> just going around in circles. The other qualification of that debate is that you have to uh, say that you would eventually endorse the Republican candidate, whoever is successful, uh, which is also tripping up, you know, even Trump, uh, mm. who is refusing at this point to say that he would support anyone who's not himself as a Republican yes. uh, nominee. So, yeah, it could be a very empty debate on August 23.
1: Speaking of leading, Trump is facing a third indictment, maybe more than that. But he his lead in in the uh, polls on Republican approval uh, is arguably better than ever uh, since he left office. One of the, the challenges is that that defies conventional wisdom. Usually, if a uh, politician is indicted, it's not a great, great outcome for them. Um, Victoria, can you just sort of walk us through how are Republican uh, candidates who are not Trump, navigating this? And why does it seem like uh, some of them, maybe, particularly Chris Christie? Are willing to talk about these indictments and talk about uh, Trump's behavior. And some of them seem to be willing to basically ignore the elephant in the room at every opportunity.
2: Yeah, it's a really, I suppose, a, a tricky calculation for those candidates because they're all vying for uh, the primary voter base that is going to actually rock up at election day and do that vote to just vote who the nominee is not going to be, not even the general election. That's always a problem getting voters to turn out for the actual election. But this is the selection of the candidates ahead of that election. So they're vying for quite a small group uh, of voters who are very politically motivated. And that politically motivated cohort is typically enlivened by Trump. Um, you know, they they really appeal, his message really appeals to them. And so their risk is that if they criticise Trump too heavily or they show themselves to be contrary to his message, um, that they really isolate themselves from those voters or make themselves unelectable. Um, but in recent times there has been a little bit more, uh, I suppose, uh, a, a number of more vocal people coming out to say that, um, you know, This is all just embroiling Trump in a lot of drama. Nikki Haley, for the first time upon the possibility of this third indictment, has come out saying, you know, I'm a bit sick of all the drama, like we need to leave this drama behind. Um, Chris Christie is the obvious outlier, the um, former New Jersey governor who um, is kind of, there's no like good way to describe this. He's sort of got like a suicide bomber approach in that he's just willing to blow himself up to criticize Trump really vociferously and show that not all Republicans endorse Trump or see him being the future of the party. And that's kind of the role he's taken on for himself, but it's basically made him unelectable and ruined his chances. Um, but, you know, for candidates like Ron DeSantis, who have kind of made their political legacy off Trump's back and off his the back of his policies, um, who is also buying for that Trump base it's a really really difficult calculation but the message that's sticking and why Trump is still popular and why you know a recent CNN report revealed that every time he gets uh, you know charged with something else or every time there's another criminal indictment he gets more and more small dollar donors coming um, you know to back his campaign part of the reason that that's working is because Trump has messaged this as political persecution that all of these cases, even though they're run by the Department of Justice, they're, you know, supposed to be impartial, he's saying that they're overtly political, and his voters believe him and his supporters believe him, and so it doesn't matter how many criminal cases come after him, they're going to continue to say, well, this is Joe Biden and the Democrats trying to prevent Trump's chances at a fair election next year. So... It kind of, it works well for Republican candidates to continue on with that message that it's political persecution or to stay out of it, but not to criticize. Uh, that's a really big risk uh, to overtly criticize Trump and to talk about the potential of him being criminally indicted.
1: David, DeSantis seems to be uh, toning a line, as Victoria is saying, um, uh, some, sometimes sort of criticizing Trump, but not really, and and really not wanting to alienate those voters. And uh the News corps famously called DeSantis the future, and yet somehow that future is not looking great for him anymore. He's been, as we said, shedding some um, support as well as campaign staff. Um, why do you think he is struggling right now? Why why do you think he's just not had the cut through that many, um, especially uh, never Trump Republicans, uh, may have hoped he would have?
0: There are a few reasons, one of which is just that it's very difficult for anybody to run against Trump. But also the focus of DeSantis's campaign which is first of all or at least was on his response to COVID, which no every, everyone just wants to forget about that now. So that really wasn't getting any traction. Uh, he's decided to run to the right of Trump on social issues, which really undermines one of the few arguments he has, which is that he's more electable than Trump. So he's arguing that he's more electable than Trump, but on the other hand, he wants to go to the right of Trump on abortion. He wants to potentially look at cutting Social Security, not for seniors now, of course, but for uh, <laughs> you know people in their 30s and 40s now. All stuff that is just demonstrably unpopular. And uh, I mean, he waited until May this year to get into the race. So he waited until Florida had had its special legislative session, which has essentially tied him to all this really far-right legislation, including a six-week abortion ban, one of the toughest in the country. Now, DeSantis wanted to wait to get into the race so that he would have more of this legislative record to sell to conservatives, as I'm actually doing stuff uh, where uh, you know, I've got a record of achievement that Trump doesn't have. But for people who are taking electability seriously and who aren't completely deluded about the nature of the electorate, they know the way that abortion hurt Republicans in 2022, and this stuff does not make DeSantis more electable. A lot of the enthusiasm around DeSantis was around, as Victoria mentioned, this really historically significant victory by Florida in 20 points. But in retrospect, I think that that was misread. Republicans in general just did very well in the state of Florida. Florida is shifting significantly to the right one of the reasons behind that um, long-term sectional shift is the fact that the Latino population of Florida is considerably to the right of the rest of the Latino population uh, in the US, partly because it's made up of immigrant groups uh, who, for whom Trump's anti-communism, anti-socialism, um, campaigns against Cuba and Venezuela had a lot of resonance, um, but also there's a very heavily... Uh, evangelical and Pentecostal element um, in that in those communities that that uh, Republicans have really gained from. Um, it also has to be said the Republican Party in Florida is very well organized and has very good uh, Latino outreach, and the Democratic Party is uh, pretty moribund. So it's kind of easy to overstate the significance of DeSantis's win. And coming back to the point about COVID. So DeSantis really took this as a sign that the country is going to want me because I stood up to Fauci and I stood up to the health bureaucrats um, on COVID. But when you look at what happened in other parts of the country, so Gretchen Whitmer, Democrat in Michigan, who had basically the opposite response to DeSantis to COVID, she won re-election by 10 points in also a very historically tight state. And Mike DeWine, the governor of Ohio, Republican governor, who possibly had the most hardline anti COVID stance of any governor in the country, he got reelected by 27 points in 2022. The same time you had Jared Polis, a Democratic governor of Colorado, who had almost exactly the same approach to Trump, got reelected by 18 points. So it's really impossible to read into the reelection of governors what kind of COVID stance you'd be able to sell to the country, which doesn't really want to hear about COVID anymore anyway. And this is part of the problem with governors. For every Bill Clinton, um, for every Ronald Reagan, some locally popular governor who makes that leap to the presidency, there are dozens of Scott Walkers, of Sarah Palins, of Jeb Bushes, of people who were phenomenally popular as governors of their own states who the rest of the country just looks at and does not like. And DeSantis certainly had what it took to win in Florida in 2022, but when he's on the campaign trail now, He really seems to lack some of the expected skills of a presidential frontrunner. And certainly the contrast is often drawn between he and Trump. He just doesn't seem comfortable talking to large audiences. He doesn't seem comfortable in interpersonal interactions. Really, his preferred medium is a press conference where he is shouting at journalists while surrounded by aides. Uh, he doesn't really do very well in any other setting. And even though there are there have certainly been conservative media figures who've found those performances quite thrilling, I think this is one of the reasons why he's not actually getting a lot of traction. He doesn't have the, the kind of charisma of somebody like Trump. He, he doesn't really have um, a, a sense of gravitas and it it's hard to see how that can really be rectified. Another thing that's worth mentioning is that he had quite an unusual approach to building his early campaign, which was not to create an army of volunteers to go out and door knock to him, but it was paid employees. So he's had he's uh, knocked reportedly on six hundred and forty thousand doors, about a quarter of them in Iowa. Where his campaign has been concentrated, and it's if that's six hundred and forty thousand paid door knocks, you can understand why he's already starting to shed campaign stuff that is not going to be a a very economic use of uh yeah of of campaign funds so it it was always going to be hard for him under the best of circumstances, despite what I think was uh a level of giddy over enthusiasm, um, but I I don't think that he has run the campaign very effectively. Either.
1: Victoria, that that was fantastic, David on on DeSantis. But I, one thing that's really interesting is is another folks have have said uh, Ron Swamy. You mentioned him as well, David, as being a a, a really good Trumpy candidate uh, who could. And one poll has uh, him as the third uh, most popular um, GOP candidate right now after Trump and DeSantis. But Victoria, on Ramos, why is he the, the candidate du jour? What do you see as his pathway forward and way to resonate and win over Republican
2: voters? a really interesting question because we're not talking about him too seriously I don't think and I think a lot of that comes down to the fact that he doesn't have a political track record whereas the others really really do so he does have that kind of outsider appeal which really appeals to that voter base that is anti-establishment anti-woke um, so he's kind of got that outsider appeal um, but you know something that I've been reading in recent times that Ramaswamy is struggling with is, you know, the early voting states like Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina, they have quite a strong evangelical Christian base. And Ramaswamy is not able to hide and he's very uh, upfront about the fact that he's Hindu. And that already is putting him on the outside of uh, other candidates who have strong evangelical roots, who have been going to Iowa, who have been going to South Carolina and speaking at evangelical rallies and who are really, you know, amping up that uh, support from the evangelical base, whereas Ramaswamy has a bit more difficulty appealing to that side. But who he does appeal to is that kind of uh, base that enjoys the antagonism of politics, that enjoys the grievance of politics, that kind of, you know, wants their guy to win so that the other side loses Um, And I think he has that kind of appeal there, uh, especially in terms of the anti-woke messaging uh, that DeSantis has, you know, kind of made his legacy on. He's, uh, I suppose, uh, the not Trump, not Trump, in that he's not DeSantis and also not Trump, but very much of that um, character build.
1: Speaking of evangelical support, David, um, you are an expert on on religion in the United States, Mm. did your PhD on that. How do you see the evangelical vote going in the GOP primaries?
0: So Trump commands a following among evangelicals that no one else comes close to, despite the fact that he really isn't one. So even genuinely devout pious evangelicals like Mike Pence do not come close to the kind of following that Trump has. Pence was originally brought on as Trump's vice-presidential candidate in 2016 in part because the Trump campaign was worried about Trump's appeal to evangelicals and felt that they needed someone who could reassure evangelicals. And certainly early in 2016 evangelical support, a lot of evangelical support went to other candidates like Ted Cruz. Um, But by the end of Trump's presidency, Trump had higher evangelical support than any president has ever had, including George W. Bush, who was a very genuine evangelical, and Ronald Reagan, who was basically the architect of the religious right in the United States. And there are a few reasons for that. One of them is that some evangelicals, especially Pentecostal and charismatic, evangelicals really see Trump as something well beyond a normal politician who can potentially use political office to serve Christian ends. They see him instead as a fulfillment of biblical prophecy, as someone who is so radical and so disruptive and so combative that it's not just about winning mundane political victories. It's about winning much bigger victories. It's about winning America for God. It's about winning the final battle um, against Satan. Now that's not all evangelicals, but that is enough evangelicals to give Trump a much bigger and more enthusiastic following than anybody else could hope for. The other thing though, is that even the label evangelical has become so laden with political meaning, that it doesn't necessarily refer anymore to strict definitions of to be an evangelical. You have to be a born again Christian who's been uh, baptized or confirmed as an adult. That you have to engage in proselytizing activity. That you have to have a certain interpretation of scripture. That you have to uh, go to church regularly. All of these things, I think, have become subservient to evangelical as a political. Identity. Conservative Christianity as a political identity, which means supporting conservative candidates, uh, supporting the Republican Party, and being opposed to progressive causes. That uh, encompasses the meaning of the term evangelical now as much as those traditional religious understandings when you actually ask people what evangelical means. And this is reflected in surveys that ask people about their uh, self-identification as evangelical. That is a double-edged sword because it means that people who might not have previously thought of themselves as evangelical uh, now do so because of their support for Trump. But it also means that other people are turning away from evangelical identity and in some cases turning away from Christian Identity altogether. But certainly, uh, Trump is absolutely the unchallenged evangelical candidate, despite the attempts of others, including DeSantis, to go after that voter base.
1: Speaking of polling, we at the US Study Center, um, myself and Victoria, have done a lot of polls on uh, in the US, Australia, and now as of uh, last year, we did in Japan as well. So I'd love to know, um, Victoria, before we move to each of our figures are there polls that you're watching are there stats that you're looking at in general are there are there sort of trends you're looking at that you think sort of can help the politically hungry australian to understand where the us is, is moving on certain issues in certain areas or on certain candidates
2: yeah it's a it's it's interesting i think as australians we would love to think that this Election is going to be won on issues that we are thinking about and care about. So we want them to be talking about foreign policy. I doubt it. You know, in these, uh, you know, people often ask me. They're like, you know, what do these candidates say about AUKUS? Nothing. <laughs> None of these candidates are going to talk about orcas. What they're going to talk about is the stuff that gets them to the ballot box, and they're, they're things that are incredibly proximate to them. Is things like the cost of living, the economy always weighs into this and that's something that we're watching especially when it comes to joe biden's re-election you know he is still the democrat nominee he still has to get re-elected next year something we're watching is whether the economy and the fact that it's doing slightly better uh, whether that's going to impact his approval ratings which have been sitting in the low 40s since I think it's august 2021 so you know is that going to give him a boost and is that going to better his chances for whoever this republican nominee is going to be um But other issues that I'd be looking at, especially abortion, uh, since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, um, the ability to legislate on abortion has been returned to states. um, And that has seen abortion law uh, take very different stances across the country. Um, And that weighed really heavily into the midterm elections. Um, And, you know, we talk about it as kind of being an election Um, You know, based on COVID and a number of other things, but abortion weighed in really, really heavily, especially in, um, you know, Democrat, for Democrats that won and won unexpectedly, they're quite often won uh, on the basis of uh, there being, you know, abortion law on the line or abortion law uh, that could have, I suppose, restricted um, access to abortion in those states. So they came out quite heavily in support and that does really drive voter turnout, especially for Democrats. So another issue that um, we should be watching quite closely. Um, I think other issues, especially when it comes to this Republican election, something that's come up since 2021 is things like parents' rights and schools. Uh, that's quite often a state-based consideration, but all of a sudden it's kind of seeping into the national conversation about what is the future direction of the country. And that—that's that's, a, I suppose, what we would term a culture wars issue. But, you know, if we're talking about messages that cut through with the electoral base, we're talking about things like stop woke, we're talking about things like critical race theory, um, all of those kind of discussions and where people sit on that, that'll feature in um, the Republican primary nomination series, be that in the debates or in the campaigns themselves. Uh, and so I suppose there are, there are a couple of things. I don't know, David, do you have any other issues?
0: I think the 2024 election is going to be another referendum on Trump. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's my feeling and no sane republican strategist would want it to be a referendum on trump but if trump is the candidate that's what it's going to be and that has a way of eclipsing just about every other issue, issue. he he just has this i mean his way of making everything about himself was a real asset mm. in 2016 and it's basically been a liability since then, uh, but there is really nothing that Republicans can do about it. There's nothing Republicans can do about the fact that Trump wants to make the 2024 election about the 2020 election mm. about about the fact that he feels that the 2020 election was stolen from him and that America needs 2024 to redeem him. Mm. That's what it's going to be about.
2: Even if he's not the nominee, he will still dominate next Mm. year. Because even if you look at the timeline of primary debates and also the trials, the possible Mm. six trials that he is looking at next year, the timelines occur all around these debates. When a number of candidates, I think it was Chris Christie and Mike Pence, when they put their hands up to run as candidates, he got indicted for a second time, and no one even paid attention to their campaign videos. I don't think anyone was watching. Mm. So even if he isn't the nominee his experiences next year are far and away going to dominate and it'll eventually be candidates, if if it's not Trump, it'll be candidates trying to use a Trump-like message Mm. to appeal to voters that will just kind of reincarnate him in a different form.
0: Yeah, and I think it's worth mentioning that some of these Republicans in the field must only be there on the chance that something is going to stop Trump from Mm. running. And we don't really know... How these criminal trials are going to affect Trump or his chances or his ability to run? You don't imagine that Trump would ever voluntarily step down, but yeah, who knows what might happen? And I think that the reason a lot of these candidates are in the field is on the the hope Mm -hmm. that Trump actually won't will will be prevented from running in the end because there aren't many of them who would have the remotest chance of him of actually uh, kind of defeating him.
2: The dynamic is as well that if they manage to defeat Trump, then they have to convince the population that they can beat Biden, Mm. which is a completely different message altogether. And so you kind of overcome this first hurdle, which is I'm not Trump, and then you have to appeal on the national level Mm. in a general election. It's, yeah.
1: In uh, 10 seconds or less, if it's Biden versus Trump in 2024, um, start with Victoria, who do you you think is... uh, how do you think that's going to pan out?
2: I'm not going to make a prediction. Oh. I've learned you just do not make these predictions. It's too hard to know. I just there's so many variables. But I mean, what I will say is that um, you have a better chance of being re- reelected. There is an incumbent advantage, and if it is Biden versus Trump, Biden does have an advantage. Trump has lost now a number of times. He's beaten Trump before. It looks pretty good for him, but you don't know. It's too far, too far away to know.
0: One of the reasons it's too far away to know is because the physical conditions of both candidates are really serious variables, and we don't know what either candidate is going to look like physically a
1: year from now. That's a great point. Um, I think uh, this is uh, one one election where we keep seeing polling showing that most Americans don't want these two leading candidates to be the leading <laughs> candidates, but here we are. Now, I asked the two have a stat or figure to share uh david do you have one to share with us and Mm. if so what is it it's two and a half percent let's hear why two and a half percent
0: that was actually trump's lead over desantis on january 1st this year two and a half percent you can understand why there was some enthusiasm uh around desantis but desantis didn't get in the race for another five months and during that time Trump basically had the field to himself and reconsolidated all of his Republican support.
1: And I believe that 2.5% is well within the margin of error. Oh, absolutely. Yes. So, yeah, I think DeSantis could have technically been leading him. Uh, So, Victoria. Your stats or figure that you want to share with us.
2: My stat or figure I found today is that there are 277 candidates that have filed with the Federal (laughs) Election Commission to run for the Republican nomination in 2024. So it's 277 candidates that have filed. We're talking about maybe eight to ten front runners, and there's only one name that we're actually all talking about, which is Trump. So in a country of over 330 million people who could possibly run, Let's maybe not possibly run, but, uh, you know, feasible candidates. We're talking about Trump versus Biden again.
1: <laughs> awesome. Well, that was fantastic. Thank you so much, Dave and Victoria. Pleasure speaking with such insightful and well-versed uh, people on on such an interesting election. But before we go, I'd like to point out a couple of other podcasts that may be of interest to our listeners. We have the Technology and Security Podcast, TS, run by Dr. Mia hammond Airy. USDC's Director of Emerging Technology, as well as our USC live series, where we run recordings from our major live events. You can hear all sorts of discussions in those live events from conversations with the Qantas CEO Alan Joyce and former US Ambassador John Barry to our researchers giving the latest updates on the AUKUS pathway forward and panel discussions on everything from the Quad to Hamilton, Australia. You can find these also on our website at usc.edu.au or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.